Welcome to the War Room. Ryan Ray here as always, and thank you so much for joining me. Today's guest is Benjamin Sledge, but first, let me just ask a favor. If you could, take two seconds to drop a five-star review wherever you're listening to this podcast at. Okay, Benjamin Sledge is a Purple Heart and Bronze Star veteran with his new book, Where Cowards Go to Die. We'll link to all of this, the book, all kinds of stuff at the show notes, which is RyanRaySenior.com. So be sure to go check it out, sign up for the newsletter, and let me know what you think of my interview with Benjamin Sled. Benjamin, it is lovely to have you on the show today. How are you doing? I'm great. How about you? Thanks for having me on the show. It's good, man. It's just hot here in Texas, but you know, that's that's the lay of the land. It's we're going through like a drought, uh, it seems. It's crazy hot. Yeah, I, I lived in I used to live in Texas for for your audience. And uh, I went through one summer, I think it was like 2011, mm. where it was like 100 plus days of 100 plus degree weather and I about melted. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, uh, yeah, I, I start, you know, it's funny because in the summertime, you're like, man, let's look at Colorado, let's look at Montana, let's look at all these cool places, you know, and then the winter comes around, you're like, God, I don't know if I can make it those cool places, so I need to move to San Diego, I think that's where I want, really want to live in. <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you, I mean, I, I live in Colorado now, and the winters are really not that bad, because it's dry, uh, and then when it snows, you're just like, okay, I'm going to skip work and go skiing. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, let's get into it. You got the new book that just come out. Congratulations. And Thank the you. title is quite interesting. Where Cowards Go to Die. Where do cowards go to die? <laughs> so this has been the question that everybody has has really asked about. They're like, man, where did you come up with the title? And and I have to I have to be a little bit long winded, not not too long. Um, but it, it starts out with really when I was in Iraq, uh, I would read a lot. And I think a lot of guys in Iraq read or when they're in Afghanistan, they read. And this was during time during the surge, I was in Ramadi and I picked up this book. I am legend. And don't, don't think anything about like the Will Smith movie. It's terrible. It's awful. Um, but it's this short novel that influenced Stephen King and, and tons of great writers that we think of these days. And it's very small and it's really about this guy who's the last person at the end of the world and vampires have taken over. So totally different from the movie. And the last words in the book are, I am legend. And I was like, man, that is so dope. Like, how did he do that? And so when I, when I started writing and become an author, I was like, man, it would be so cool to end a book in that way, shape or form. And I had this idea of just kind of like what I wanted to talk about as far as my experience in combat and war. And I realized, you know, reading most of the books that had come out, a lot of them were incomplete or, or broken. They didn't encapsulate the humanity, the barbarity and the complexity of combat. And one of the things that I really wrestled with and most veterans wrestle with once they get out of the services, where do I find that sense of camaraderie, that mission, that purpose once more? And so for me, when I got out and when I came home for more, I really had to, to discover that once more. My life had to be violently turned upside down and my beliefs challenged. And I had to once more discover purpose and meaning the same way that I found it in, in combat. And so at the end of the book, I, I really, you know, I had this epiphany years earlier where I realized that when the truth of cowardice and purpose and meaning is when we refuse to have our beliefs challenged, we operate in selfishness, refuse our, to give our lives in, in service to something greater, we numb out with either alcohol or drugs, then 
then we'll die as cowards. But the flip side of the coin is if we're willing to do the opposite, the cowardice that prowls in the human heart has to die. And so realistically, I, I discovered that if I didn't face my problems and readjust and find that mission and purpose once more, I would die as a coward. But if I wanted to find that growth and that sense of peace and well-meaning once more, the coward that wanted me to stay safe had to die. And so that's where I kind of land the plane in the book. Well, I feel like we're being robbed here today because you're the only other person I've spoken to who's read I Am Legend. And I think it's a great <laughs> book. You don't like the book or you don't like the movie? I love the book, hated the movie. Okay, the the okay. book is one of my all-time favorites and heavily influenced a lot of, of my writing well, in many ways. That's my fault, but you said you didn't like it. I was like, wait, you must be in the movie. Okay, but yeah, the book is, I heard someone talk about, um, and it wasn't just I Am Legend. It was that and several other books that have been turned into films, and the films actually have multiple iterations. So there's multiple uh, films of I Am Legend. It's changed what's happened in the film each time. Uh, right, the, the Omega is, Man was the original. Right, and but the book is really, really good. Matter of fact, I might, I thought about the other day, go back through it, and I might do that here uh, when I finish up these next uh, next book I'm working on. So if you haven't read I Am Legend, it is fantastic. It's not like the book at all, um, but it, it's, it's, yeah, I mean, I'm sorry, it's not like the movie at all, but it, it's great. Okay, so um, you talk about kind of this this struggle going overseas, coming back. Uh, I hear that a lot. Someone, I never served in the military my my dad did and both my grandfathers my, one of my grandfathers fought world war ii um and so my dad though, made a documentary on vietnam vets and so i watched that and that was kind of so in school you know I, I had some teachers who were vietnam vets or of that age um obviously it was well past my time but hearing them talk about how they what they came home to and how they were perceived um and and, and how they struggled telling their story was, was quite interesting. And then I think about um, some of my friends who have gone to Afghanistan or Iraq and the public perception of those two things uh, are different, or at least when they're going on. Um, but it seems like there is a little bit of connection of coming back home from those two or three campaigns and how the veterans have dealt with that. Is there any similarities that you can draw there or, they, or is it just the fatigue of war? What are your thoughts on that? Yes, I, I, I covered this in my book and also wrote an op-ed about it um, entitled, you know, this is my Vietnam about Afghanistan. Cause I served in both Afghanistan and Iraq and I feel so much more close knit to Vietnam veterans um, simply because, I mean, if you look at the pictures of the fall of Kabul and then the fall of Saigon, it's like they're identical. It's creepy. And then there was no real clear objective. You know, we had accomplished most of what we wanted to within the first six months of invading Afghanistan and rooting out the Taliban and terrorist cells and whatnot. And then we just kind of had this complete inability to, to figure out what the heck we wanted to do there. Uh, so when I got there in 2003, that's still very early in the war effort. But, you know, the, the U.S. media, Eye of Sauron, is looking at Iraq during that time period. So everybody's forgotten about Afghanistan. And so they're like, well, we got to figure out how we're going to sell this thing. So it became about like the war on drugs. And they wanted to shut down like the Silk Road and the, the poppy fields and the DEA was there. And then it became about minerals and commodities. And then it became about stabilization and democracy. And it, it just constantly changed. And if you look at Vietnam, it was the same thing. We just kind of had this complete inability to kind of figure out what we were doing there and said, you know, oh, it's about, you know, communism. Um, for us, it was, you know, about democracy in Iraq and Afghanistan was kind of the overarching narrative or originally it was WMDs. And then when we leave, it all goes right back to where it was. And, you know, for me, I was I was wounded in combat in Afghanistan. It's like my blood's on that soil. And I'm just like, 
man, what did, what did we accomplish in, in some ways? And a lot of Vietnam veterans struggled to put to that, that idea into terms also. And really what we discovered a lot of the times is it was just about the men next to us. It was about the men and women next to us and, and making it home. And so, um, you know, there, there were good things that happened in Afghanistan, women getting an education uh, that was zero for zero under the Taliban. Uh, you know, I've talked to interpreters who have just said, you know, I was there under the Taliban and we didn't have, you know, water, electricity, sewage, like cell phones, internet, and they had that, but it's, it's a very difficult thing to wonder what your sacrifice meant, like in the grand scheme of things, when there wasn't a clear objective, like there was, you know, for my grandfather and your grandfather in World War II, it's like defeat the Nazis, save the world, the end. Uh, instead, it, it just kind of was like, well, this is foreign policy for us. And, and then we left and now we come home and we go, well, what do we do with all of that? And so that's, I feel very, very similar and have talked to several Vietnam vets. And it's kind of like we just clasp arms and go, man, I get you. I understand you. How does the public at large, someone like me who didn't serve and someone like you talk about these things? Because obviously, you know, um, Afghanistan and Iraq, especially Afghanistan going in, was no controversy at all for the most part. Iraq was a little bit more controversial. As they've gone on, the public perceptions changed. And so you do have you have these veterans, as you said, there's their bloods on that soul. And then you have people who have not fought trying to question that. And one of the things I've been trying to grapple with lately is how do we kind of have these discussions to where um the, they honor the sacrifice that was because real people spilled real blood, right? Um, right? And yet there's other broader societal questions that we have. And so you want to have these discussions in a way that's respectful to all that. Um, but it seems that that can be hard to do it sometimes. Right. I, I actually address this in my book, Where Cowards Go to Die, because um, one of the things that helped me reintegrate back into society was two civilians, funny enough. And in times past, I get into the kind of the history of the warrior um, and, and wars. When warriors would come home from war in just different cultures, um, oftentimes there was community involvement or there, there were even purification rites. So the Navajo would purify their warriors who came back home. Uh, medieval knights, same thing, even though the Crusades had been sanctioned by the Catholic Church, the Catholic Church viewed taking another life as morally wrong, so they had to go through this purification process that often involved their village. If you consider World War II, everybody was in kind of this collective mindset, hive mindset, and it was always on the forefront of people's minds. You knew who your, your neighbors who were serving, uh, everybody was working in factories, buying war bonds. You would go to the uh, movies and you would see updates on what was happening. And so there, there was a lot of community involvement. And yet you look at kind of the wars now and it was just largely became background noise because it had gone on so long. And what happened to me was I realized, you know, people were war weary and they were tired and they didn't want to hear about necessarily my guilt or the, the, the morally questionable things that I had to do or went through in combat. And I, and I wanted to really talk about it. But when I first got home from Afghanistan, I just remember the way that people would look at me when, you know, you start having the gallows humor come out, that dark humor. And you're laughing about things that are morally reprehensible, like an insurgent's head exploding. Um, and it wasn't necessarily what they said. It was all in their body language or their look. And so the thing that, that I 
tell people now is I say there has to be some type of collective responsibility um, to reintegrate our, our soldiers back into society. And that begins by having these conversations with them. And the same way that you would earn trust with a friend, the same way that you would earn trust, uh, comfort somebody who has been through a traumatic breakup or a harsh scenario uh, is the same way that you begin to earn that trust with veterans. But the problem at the moment is, is people ask the wrong questions or they just immediately want to dig into the trauma of what had happened. So it's like, Hey, did you kill anybody? Or, and it's, or, you know, you go to the VA and they're like, okay, well, I've never met you. So uh, tell me about the worst moments of your life and your nightmares. And you're just like, Whoa you know, hold up. Like, can we get to know each other? Like take me on a date here first or something. And, um, the guys that, that did that with me, the thing that I discovered is, is suffering is a universal language that we all speak while our experiences may be different. We've all been through something that has either made us stronger or that has, um, you know, kind of become a wound to us or a scar. And one of the guys had that I began talking with, his parents had just died back to back. Um, his dad was an alcoholic and they were hoarders and he felt guilty, you know, about his parents dying because he loved them, but also kind of like hated them. And it was wrecking his marriage and he was in counseling. And this was during the time where I was like, man, you know, we don't do counseling. That's not what we do. But he was so honest and open about what he had been going through and the confliction that he felt in like loving his parents and also kind of like despising them that it opened me up. Uh, and I began to just slowly share things. And he and another guy just mentally ensured that that I came home for more. And so oftentimes I, I, I tell civilians, like, if you want to bridge that gap, just learn to get to know us. Um, don't ask us the hard questions up front, earn our trust. And with time, we're going to open up and you're going to get to hear the stories and understand us a bit more. Yeah. And that is one of the things I think that, that, that society as a large uh, has to grapple with is. Um, and this isn't a judgment per se, but we have war movies all the time. Um, and so mm-hmm. on some level, you kind of, I mean, my favorite show is Band of Brothers. Now, I don't think it glamorizes yeah. war. I think it actually probably depicts, you know, just how tough in the Pacific, it's not as good, but it, it also depicts just how brutal those things are and how tough they are. But plenty of movies can glamorize it. And so it makes it to where the average person who hasn't experienced it thinks, hey, we can talk about this. And that's, and it's not to your point, it's not that we can, it's just maybe not today. Um, and then you also have this other thing you talked about the counseling aspect is society's grappling with what is manhood, right? And so mm-hmm. you have all of these things, and then you have whether it's politically expedient for you to talk to someone who came back from this conflict, because that might mean you support it or you don't support it or this or that. And so we have this confluence of things that are putting pressure on everyone. And it makes it tough when you have someone who has seen traumatic things and dealt with traumatic things trying to come back and reintegrate, it would seem. Yeah. And I think that one of the the key issues too is uh, the reason why veterans struggle and and we have this lack of real trust is overseas you have people that are willing to die for you and they come from all socioeconomic backgrounds, uh, ethnicities, religions, and you all get along, which is crazy. You know, you go to the barracks and you're going to have a cowboy listening to gangster rap. Well, another dude is cooking you Indian food, you know, and nobody's disagreeing uh, over that stuff. Instead, you're taught you're all green. You know, now that you're in the military, you're all green. And you put aside those differences and you're trained to love um, the United States of America and the, the citizens in it. 
And then you return home to a world where everything is so divided and the, the narratives are, are just kind of crazy. Like, oh, if you don't support this, then, you know, I hate you. And we're like, man, we're told to put aside those differences and just, you know, care for one another and to love your differences because we love our country. And that's what we fight for is those freedoms. And then you go to a job where you enter the workforce and everybody's trampling each other to get to the top or their boss is trying to make all this extra money and leaves you to catch proverbial shrapnel in the trenches and overseas, everybody had your back. Everybody was willing to die for you. And so it becomes this giant alienating experience where when you were in that environment for so long, for 20 years, you're just like, the hell is wrong with everybody here? And if you'll, you'll notice this part of the, the reason veteran suicides are as high as they are simply has to do with the fact that we're the most well-trained as far as weaponry tactics and everything. So you would think we would be doing the most mass shootings because of how disgruntled we are. Not true. We end up turning the weapons on ourselves because we love our countrymen. And so we just take ourselves out of the equation, which is the travesty. Mm. You mentioned being overseas and different ethnic groups, um, you know, different uh, foods and music and stuff. What role or any do you think that, you know, uh, religion played in your going through this experience? Was faith a big part of you trying to get through some of these tough moments? Has it been a part coming home? Not at all. Where do you land on that spectrum? Oh, absolutely. I talk about this in my book and I didn't I didn't want to come off as like the preachy guy, but um let me start with this and then I'll backtrack. War is a very spiritual experience and uh, people misinterpret that. Many clinicians are missing that aspect because human beings are complex. We are physical, we are emotional, um, we are intellectual beings, we are spiritual beings. And because of that, they're doing a disservice not talking about this aspect. And the reason why war is such a spiritual experience is is a, on some level, it's like playing God. You have the power to take life or protect it. And so the thing that people don't realize is all of us think we know what's going to happen when we die, even myself included, you know, but there's no formative consensus like across the board. Like, yes, this is what, this is exactly what happens when you die. Some people believe, you know, you spend eternity in heaven. Some people believe it's the great nothingness. Other people believe it's cycles of reincarnation. And out of that, um, it, we've just kind of labeled it the great unknown because we just, we don't know. But when you point an M4 carbine rifle at a man and you pull the trigger, you're going to send him to the great unknown. And there is something inherently deeply spiritual about that. And that's what I came to realize in combat. So my background was, is I grew up in Oklahoma and the buckle of the Bible belt. My parents uh, met at Bible college and uh, I grew up like in a Christian household, but I was very much involved in like the, the 1980s and 90s version of Footloose, you know, <laughs> where it's like, don't drink, don't dance, you know, don't listen to secular music. And I was the metal kid. I'm still the metal guy. I loved, you know, the big four, Metallica, Pantera, Slayer, uh, Megadeth. Uh, I've seen all of them in concert. And when you're in that environment, you become the social outcast and everybody tells you, you know, you're evil. And then I grew up in an environment called the prosperity gospel, where you were taught, like, basically that if you believed enough, God would drop like a Maserati on your porch or something. And most T 
teachings still very much revolve around this kind of ideology of Christianity where people treat God like a genie that they rubbed the right way to get, you know, um, the cookie jar a little bit more full. So when I was 17, I was like attending this church and like the pastor was just doing really gross stuff and embezzling funds and, you know, sleeping with the secretary. And I was like, man, this is all a sham. I took almost like a, a Karl Marx route where it became the um, ideology of, uh, let's see, more of, um, you know, an opiate to control the masses. And, and um, because of that, what ended up happening to me was I just, I kind of left the church and then I got to Afghanistan and I began to wrestle with this one question. Um, and it was an existential question. It was, what is the point of humans, like homo sapiens? Like what's our purpose? Not as a collective species, not our individual purpose, but like what on earth are humans here for? And what I had seen in combat was we were really good at maiming and killing one another. And because of that, uh, I was like, man, we act like we're so enlightened in the modern age. We're like, we would never do those barbaric things in times past. And I think that's, that's how it works in history. We look at everybody else and judge them and don't judge ourselves. But I started to judge us. I was like, dude, we built atomic bombs. We can literally take out the entire world now. But why? Why would we do that? What? Like, why did we build those things? That's a, that's a terrible way. To, and then we had drone strikes and we were in the, all these wars and there's genocides never been easier. And that question really messed with me. And so I ended up on this journey throughout, you know, Afghanistan and Iraq. And then when I came home, I was really struggling. Uh, my wife had left, uh, you know, and uh, three months prior to coming home, um, you know, I get home, I don't really have a job or anywhere to land. So I'm living on my buddy's couch in Austin, Texas. And uh, he's an atheist and I'm, you know, kind of whatever at best. And he, he just can tell that I'm getting worse. And so he goes, hey, man, can't take you to church. And I was like, OK, sure. What's that going to do for either one of us? And I begin to meet Christians who actually um, emulated their faith. Uh, and I think like that's the, the hard part is, is that it's really easy to say you're a Christian. It's really hard to actually be Christian in nature. And so I just began to explore really deep and hard questions. Like if there's a God, um, you know, I think I deserve to burn. So uh, you know, how could he accept me or two, you know, if there's a God, why is there evil and suffering in the world? So I took like very high level, you know, theological questions. And then eventually just found, uh, after studying every major world religion and even secular humanism, um, that Christianity for me was the most intellectually satisfying and emotionally stimulating at the same time. And uh, ended up landing there and kind of combined all aspects of moral, physical, emotional, and then the spiritual aspect. And uh, it gave me such a new and profound sense of purpose and meaning. Yeah, it is an interesting um, thing to consider that if you're out there playing God um, or you know, in that role on the battlefield, um, from an atheistic standpoint, there, there's almost a sense in which you, you, you shouldn't necessarily feel emotion because you look at the animals and, and how they can do each other. They, they don't have that remorse, but humans innately, they struggle with these things. And that's why when we come back, uh, when you guys come back over here, there's, there's this problem that you have to deal with of this emotion and this attachment. And 
and the, the, the doubt, you know, why, why me, why not them and, and all that. And so um, it's interesting to hear that, 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 that coming back was when you started to reflect on that, I guess, did you, you think you pushed that to the side while you were in combat to kind of stay sane or uh, did you gra- grapple with some of those questions in combat as well? I, I definitely did both. Uh, so some of it, you just pushed out, but then you were placed in extremely morally ambiguous situations. There's a story in my book uh, that I talk about. And it's, it's a moment during the battle of Ramadi, we, which is the most violent portion of the war. So for, for your audience, Ramadi in 2006 uh, accounted for half of all deaths that occurred that year for the United States Marine Corps. And it accounted for half of all daily attacks that happened in the country of Iraq. So imagine that you have like Bagram, Mosul, Basra, like all these tons of places that that are having attacks half of all of them are in Ramadi every single day which is wild to 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 think about uh so after the fall of Fallujah uh all the insurgents went over to Ramadi and it just kind of became this epicenter of hell and so we we ended up when we landed there smack dab in the middle of the battle of Ramadi which is um you can look it up now it's crazy it's like where Chris Kyle was Jocko Willink and all those dudes uh so it's it's We'll probably go down similar to like the Battle of the Bulge because it was became the turning point in the Iraq war um, because we were able to pacify the city. So we get there and we go on this clearing operation with a Marine Expeditionary Unit uh, to retake the city across. the. So my my four man team splits up and two of my guys go with the Marine platoon and me and uh, my lieutenant go with another team. We get word that uh, we have troops in contact, and all I know is my dudes are in that area, and I'm watching smoke plumes billow in in the background and in the distance, and then we start taking fire on top of this combat outpost where we're stationed at, and I'm up there with the first sergeant, with one of the first sergeants from the 1st Infantry Division, and uh, he hands me his rifle because he's got a higher power scope on it, and he says, take a look. And I look down where the, the fire is coming from, and, and near this mosque is a little girl who's no more than six years old in a yellow dress, and she's carrying munitions. And my heart sinks because I know her, too. She's, she's hung around the combat outpost a bunch. Um, we give her chocolate. She hugs us. Um, and she always gives us flowers, so we call her the flower girl. And she had given me this daisy. Uh, and I was so touched by the, the gesture that I had kept it in my chest rig. And so here she is, she's walking the direction where I think my guys are, um, in contact and they were, it was two of them versus like 20 insurgents. It was just nightmare for them. And she's going to resupply them. And he just looks at me and he goes, they do this, you know, you use kids to ferry munitions. And so you either have to shoot them or you have to let them go. And so inside me, like every single emotion is roiling. I'm like, do I sign potentially my friend's death warrant if they get resupplied? Um, you know, are, are the insurgents going to be able to uh, block their escape routes with IEDs? You know, a, a million questions are going through my mind. I have my finger ho- hovering over the trigger just with this little girl in, in the crosshairs. And uh, I'm like, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? And it's, you know, it's angel and devil on my shoulder. Uh, you know, it's like, it's like, just do it. And then, you know, the angels like, you'll never forgive yourself. And so finally I just take my finger off the the trigger, move it to safe and then hand it back the rifle. And I can't even formulate the words. And he just slaps me on the back. And, you know, he, he calls me a sicko uh, because he he wants to, 
leave, you know, add some brevity into the situation. But he's like, look, man, he was like, I'm glad you didn't do that. We, we don't shoot kids. We're American soldiers. And I knew that I knew what he was saying in that moment, but I also knew it wasn't technically true because some of the guys that I was with uh, had to shoot teenagers because they ran at them with AK-47s or ran out to place IEDs and uh, there were, uh, you know, U.S. troops coming. And so when you come into those environments and, and you're forced to um, live with that, some of it is, is like you deal with it there. And then other times you're just in the midst of the craziness and there's just other insurgents there and you're fighting for your lives. And you just, you're just like muscle memory takes over and you're just shooting, you're running and gunning. So it's a little bit of both end um, to that question. Yeah. Um, your, your story there reminds me of um, that documentary I was referencing earlier that my dad did about the Vietnam vets. And there's a story in there where um, I don't remember the particulars of who the girl was. It was a young girl, uh, maybe 10 to 13. And she dies. I don't remember how, I think it's a bomb or a grenade or something kills her. And they walk up to her and here's this young, pretty, innocent girl who just got killed in the war. And they had, and, and the guy says that someone makes a kind of vulgar joke. And he goes, you might hear that and go, how could you do that? And he goes, but if we didn't do that, we'd all burst into tears in that moment because the stress is so overwhelming. And so I, I never thought about that until he said that. But just I, can, I can't imagine that, like at that moment, like you, you say, you can't, you can't make your, your guy kind of makes a joke. Like you have to do something to bust just the tension that's built upon you to for those moments, which probably felt like hours. Yeah. And immediately after that, I like sit down on this crate on the rooftop and I'm like, pull my helmet off. I'm running my hands through my hair. And I'm just like, Oh my gosh, what happened? And my Lieutenant comes up and he goes, anything happened? And I go, you're never going to believe this. I almost shot the flower girl, you know, and I make it a joke right? as opposed to what really happened. Yeah. Yeah. This, this very intense moment. And you do that. You'll, you'll, you'll laugh about dead bodies or stuff. Like, we, we ended up, um, it's in a chapter called Cemetery Gates in my book, where we end up in a mass graveyard uh, in, in Iraq um, on this combat operation. We find out from the locals, it's either where Saddam had disposed of dissent or where insurgents had buried bodies. And so we're finding like all these bones buried out in this area, you know, where it's like sun bleached. And so I'm running around swinging a femur like i'm a caveman other people are have like jaws that they're doing you know talking like in middle eastern accents and you're just like in normal people would be horrified by this but if we didn't have that those moments like the, the gravity of that situation like a mass graveyard where people were disposed of mm -hmm. you can't you can't sit there in that moment without just bursting into tears and so that's the problem when you get home you remember that stuff. You remember the person that you became um, to survive in such a very long war where most of us did two, three, four, five, you know, six deployments. And, uh, and then you're like, how do I live with the person that I became to survive? And that's why you're seeing such an increase in, in mental health issues. When the history books are written a hundred years from now, what's the <laughs> one thing that you hope that, that they get right about Iraq and Afghanistan? Uh, I, that's tough. Uh, let, let me start by saying this. I think they're going to romanticize the crap out of us. Like legit. Like we did it. We did it with my grandparents. Like, and that's why I love Band of Brothers, just like you, is there's that scene. Um, is it Band of Brothers or Saving Private Iraq? Anyway, they, the guy walks past and this dude's a German soldier 
and uh turns out he's like from the same area as this american soldier oh, yeah. that's, that's, that's that's the first that's the first uh first or second show yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. and then they just kill them all blow them all down with yeah. like and just mow them all down and that's what they did and then man people got so mad about enhanced interrogation methods in the iraq and afghan wars i was like dude do you know what our grandparents were doing to each other like in the pacific to pow's and like uh german prisoners of war and all of that like you you and yet they're they're like oh the greatest generation i was like they're doing really grotesque stuff like i i legit so when my grandfather died i inherited all of his stuff um and i and i have this and uh if i if i had the time i i'd show you but it's a, a leave pamphlet for him in um paris and everywhere on this map is marked where they can get like uh, anaphylactic stuff for, for for venereal disease. And they're like, look, don't hook up with too many prostitutes. I'm like, oh, my. These are our grandparents, you know. And uh, and yet it's the military is like, here's where you go in case you get syphilis, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I have a feeling that like right now they're, they're going to be like, oh, that was like the last good war. Cause like they went over and fought the terrorist and Al Qaeda and they were, and they did the world trade center. And like, well, it's not really popular. And we kind of like lost about it. I think they're going to romanticize it because less than 1% of us fought in the longest running wars in the history of the United States. Like it's not even close. Like Vietnam is like what, seven, you're going to have to add another 13 years on, right. you know, to catch up with us. But the one thing that I want them to know is, is just like, it wasn't pretty. Like we, it wasn't a good war. It, it was heartbreaking. It was devastating. There was collateral damage. And, and I think the thing that I want people to know, like I, I very much believe in reasons for us to go to war, but I also very much don't believe in reasons for us to go to war. And I think it should be a last minute thing um, as opposed to kind of a preemptive foreign policy strike. And I don't want to send our kids, my kids, to, to go die on some foreign land just so that some politician can get rich in the long run, uh, whether they're Democrat or Republican, because I saw both of them just make hand over fist money while they were over there. And that's the, the greatest travi- travesty, I think, that happens in our you know Demo- Democratic Republic is that we send our die, our young to die on the whims of politicians who've never served in the killing fields. And there's something very wrong about that. Yeah, I will link to uh, With the Old Breed by Eugene Sledge from mm-hmm. the Pacific. And his book, uh, I think, is, is where they draw some of that stuff, Hemel for a Pillow as well. But Eugene Sledge's book is really good. Uh, and it kind of gives you that raw feel. And uh, that's the Pacific version of it. And then you know, my favorite scene of Band of Brothers is... Um, is there towards the end where Buck Compton sees his two friends get blown up basically right in front of him. And he drops, it's, it's in the trailer. Like it, it's him dropping the helmet in the snow and it captures that moment of just, wow, you know, here's this guy, one of the leaders. Um, but, but, but both those shows do hit on kind of some of this stuff where random people die for random things and it makes it hard to explain. And so it's not the real thing, but for someone like me, it's kind of like, okay, this is probably um, it clo- close as I can probably get to something like that. So I'll link to those books in the show notes of course we got linked to your book so where can people find your book at uh so we're on all major uh platforms you know if you want to go to your local bookstore they have it there they've got it on barnes and noble amazon obviously is the big one 
Uh, we're doing really well right now. Number one new release. And we, we hit like the top 3000 books so far, which out of 33 million that are on Amazon, that's making me feel pretty good. Awesome. Awesome. But okay. we're, uh, we're yeah, cowards, we're cowards going to die. Anywhere else you want to send people, website, social media, something like that. Uh, you can always get in touch with me on uh, benjaminsledge.com. You can literally Google my name, Ben Sledge or Benjamin Sledge, either one. Everything that pops up is me. I write, um, have written for for major uh, entities and, and organizations ranging from Fox to uh, Medium, which is where my large platform is uh, and where I write often. So if you're interested in any of that, head on over. But, uh, you know, you can Google me and find out a little bit more about what I who I am and what I do. I guess I should have made the connection earlier. You're not related to Eugene Sledge, are you? I was going to bring that up. So I have looked through Ancestry.com. Here's what's crazy. So all the sledges are from the South. Uh, he was from Alabama, but my side comes from Tennessee. And I've I met a guy who served in Afghanistan with the last name Sledge. And he's over near where all my kin is in, mm-hmm. in Tennessee. So I don't know. I would love to know um, if somebody does a genealogy thing on me. Please let me know, because otherwise I'm going to have to spend thousands of dollars but uh, I read his book and I thought it was one of the, um, you know, most honest portraits of war. And that's what I really wanted to do for the modern day veteran in Iraq and Afghanistan was not some fluffy piece, but the reality of situations in combat. Okay. Where Cowards Go to Die is the book. We'll link to it in the show notes. Benjamin, thank you for your time today. Thank you for having me on the show.